to continue talking about Holy Week, um, and today we'll be discussing Thursday, Monday, Thursday. So um, as we get ready to, there's a lot goes on in this Thursday, and so there's a lot happening, um, but we're also going to kind of save Friday for Friday, Good Friday. I kind of like that. Then on Good Friday, we will kind of discuss the trial, we'll discuss Pilate, um, we'll discuss um, the cross and his death um, on Good Friday. And so it's a, Good Friday is always meant to be a somber time. That's the point of a Good Friday service, because then Sunday is a celebration. Like Sunday should be a party. Um, we celebrate the risen king, but on Friday we mourn the loss of our savior. Um, and I know sometimes that, that's how I like to do it, and that's how I typically do it. Um, I know a lot of times on a Sunday, Easter Sunday, you'll talk about the crucifixion, you'll talk about the, um, but I think it's Sunday should be the party. Um, I don't know if you were like me when I watched the Passion of the Christ movie, and it's the end of the movie, and I'm feeling wrecked from all of this watching this happen, and then they just show the grave open, and then the credits roll, I'm like, can we have the party? Like, the, I want the sequel. Like, that's that's what we need. That's what I want. And thankfully, after that happened, um, some different groups put together the story of the Bible, and there's they've done Paul, and they've done lots of things to help that. But I, I just, I don't, Friday is when you feel the weight. You feel the weight. Saturday, you feel the weight. And then Sunday is the party. And so that's what I want us to kind of focus on. That we're getting, we're, as we're looking at Thursday, we're beginning to see the steps of Jesus walking to the cross and he knows it's coming and you can see it's weighing heavily on him as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we're going to talk about that today. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time that we have um, in your word. And I pray you'll open us up to what you have for us today, that we would see, um, we would see the deliberate way in which you made everything happen and that as you did this your disciples were changed um, they were shocked they were amazed they were still a little unaware um, but they clearly focused on the cross as they carried the message of hope to the world help us to do the same we love you amen so as we look at thursday um, i know that we uh, kind of i kind of poked into it a little bit already um, last week when we were talking about the anointing uh, at Bethany, um, which would have been on Wednesday, um, even though, and thanks to Chuck, and he helped me point out that I didn't make it very clear, that Wednesday was silent as far as Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. But Wednesday wasn't a silent day. We, the word speaks of it, and it speaks of the anointing of, in Bethany. So when he goes to Bethany, the woman comes, and she anoints his feet with perfume, anoints him, with, pours it on his head, not the foot anointing passage, anoints him. Um, so we know that very literally this anointing of Jesus, um, that oil, it's not like they bathe two, three times a day like we would. Or once you have a hard day in the dirt, then they would go wash, they would wash their feet. They wouldn't wash necessarily everything else. And so we see as we even look at the foot washing that happens um, with the disciples that that anointing of that woman's grace and gratitude and thankfulness would have, he would have smelled the aroma of that perfume as he was on the cross. That this one act of this woman in her total gratitude of him 
And as one disciple says, why would you spend all that money? Why would you? She lavished him and that same lavishness of grace and that thankfulness. Can you just imagine he's on the cross contemplating all this, feeling all this pain that his, as his blood is flowing, as his muscles are cramping, he could have continued to smell the aroma of thankfulness on him. It's a beautiful picture uh, of this moment in, in Bethany carrying him through to the cross. We know that Jesus, well, we'll get to that later. Okay, so if we look in, we start in Matthew um, around verse 26. We see the institution of the Lord's Supper. Is this mic working? Okay, I feel like maybe it's just me. Maybe my ears are going bad. I'm falling apart. Um, we see that he's, the Judas betrays in 14. We see um, that he's going to have the Passover. Um, we see in verse 17, Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So he tells them, Go in, a certain man's going to say this. And the disciples did as they directed. Now this is like, Go to the city, a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My, name, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did this. So Jesus had made arrangements already for this to happen. At some point in his time in Jerusalem, either he knew someone there or he had already made plans for this. He, he had set this up. So the Last Supper, this time of Passover, it's not just an afterthought. It's, yes, they're going to celebrate the Passover meal. They're going to do this. But Jesus had already come with a plan for this to happen. So when we talk about communion, we talk about the Last Supper, don't think that it was just an afterthought. Like, well, you know, we got to do the Passover thing before I go to the cross. Well, let's have the meal. Oh, since we're here, I guess we'll talk about communion. Like, that's not what's happening. Jesus very clearly had a plan because he said, go find this guy and say the teacher. So it's going to be one of his disciples, a follower of him who sees him as a rabbi, sees him as a teacher. Jesus has already arranged for this. He's already arranged for this spot. But his disciples have to go to prepare it. Go find this guy and then prepare the meal. Verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him after another, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answers, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Whoa. He asked a direct question. And he goes, Yep, it's you. Pretty crazy. Can you imagine being Judas? He knows he's found out. He's in the middle of all the rest of the disciples, the people he's been with for years. And Jesus goes, yeah, it's you. Totally busted. Anybody else would have said, that's the betrayer, snatching boys, toss him out the window. Jesus didn't do that. His plan was for this to happen. His plan was for this to be instituted in this moment. He knew it was coming. He then institutes the Lord's Supper. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, in this moment, Judas had left. So Judas has already left. So before the institution of the Lord's Supper, um, if we look to John, I'm going to have to switch for a minute. We can flip over. Um, he says, one of you is going to betray me. It was night. New commandment. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Hatred of the world. Sorrows. High priestly prayer. There's all these things in John that we see happen. That in all of this, like Judas is out. He takes communion. And there's some conjecture. Did Judas take communion and then leave? Or did Judas leave and then communion has happened? People disagree based upon um, what we see in John and in Matthew. Um, but the, what I want you to see is that there's in the Gospel of John from chapters 13 and a half, he says, one of you will betray me. In John, there's a different picture of what happens here. So in John, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So they all look at each other. Who is it? One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, I love that John described himself as the one Jesus loved. That's pretty good. <laughs> Reclined the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So you have to get this picture. When they're, at a, um, when they're reclining at a table, they kind of laid back. Like you, you would lean forward and you would eat at the table and you kind of laid down. Kinda, you kind of ate laying down with your feet behind you. So it's a low table and you're kind of hanging out on pillows. And so Judas, or John, would have kind of leaned into Jesus. So they would have been laying here, looking here, and John's to his side. And John would have kind of rolled in and said, Hey, Jesus, who is it? Come on, tell me. Which one? So you get this, and Simon is the one going, John, ask him. Like they're all laying there, and he's like, there's eye contact. He's like, John, that's the guy. Come on, tell me. And so John leans over, and what we think is that Judas would have been on the other side. It would have been Simon, John, Judas would have been over here. And so John leans in and goes, hey, who is it? He's right there. And John, he tells us, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Because so you get this intimate moment like John, who is it? That's who I'm giving the next bite to. Here, Judas. Judas takes it. And then Jesus tells him, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. Let's get this over with. It's time. I've set the stage. I've made this happen. It's happening in my time. Get busy. Get busy doing the evil you're about to do. Go. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. So you get this intimate moment. Who is it? Watch this. John would be, oh, it's him. And then Jesus goes, do what you got to do quickly. And the whole table would be like, what? What? Is, what? No clue. Judas takes off, goes to betray him. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, that's, the, that's the, the middle of chapter 13. You have chapters 14, chapters 15, when he says, I'm the true vine, 
um, talks about the sorrow and the joy, the Holy Spirit's coming, the high priestly prayer. Judas is not here for any of this. He's not in the room for any of these things. And then the beginning of 18 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the, excuse me, went out with his disciples across the Cadrone Valley where there was a garden. Now, this jumps us back to Matthew. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes across the Kidron Valley. But I wanted to show you a couple things first. Um, there is a building that's kind of labeled as the room where the Last Supper happened. Now, this is not the building. But there's a place where you can go visit. That you can see the architecture is very kind of post-Middle Age, Middle Age architecture, Crusader-type architecture with high-flying um, places. Um, and in this, they think, there's a little sign that this corner, this area. Uh, so what you say when you go to Israel is you don't say, like, that's where the Last Supper happened. You can maybe cut a light down so I can see, um, especially this one here, I guess. Uh, the Yeah, that's a lot better, isn't it? Um, what you see is that, like, the, you can't, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know what I'm saying, but you, what you say is this is the airspace in which the Last Supper happened. You do not say that the Last Supper happened in this room, because look at the architecture. Not really Middle Eastern, first century architecture. It's not even close. And so there's, there's, there's kind of some letdown sometimes when you go in there, like, I'm going to go to the upper room, and you're like, Oh, there's electricity and lights, and there's not, I don't really, that's not really, but I mean, you got to get over that. I mean, 2,000 years of destruction, 2,000 years of buildings being raised, buildings being, you got to get over that. But this area is the airspace in which the Last Supper, so there was kind of an emotional moment. Like, this is, at least this is the area in which this would have happened. Pretty powerful, really. And so then what happens, and I want you to see this. So the Last Supper would have happened, we think, kind of down over here. This would have been the location of the Last Supper inside the city walls. It's over here in this area, away from the high wealth. We talked about um, Herod's temple, the temple, Herod's palace, and where the wealth is. So it's not in a super wealthy area, but it's also not in the lowest of the income areas that we saw in the city of Jerusalem there. So if the Last Supper happens here, um, down in this corner of the city, right, you have the upper room there. The high priest's house is close by. Um, so Judas would have left the upper room and we would went to the priest's house to say, come get him. It's time. So there's this moment. Judas leaves. Jesus continues talking to the disciples. There's some time there. We don't know what Judas is doing. Maybe he's, wh he's whipping them to a frenzy. The high priest is then going to go get some soldiers. There, this has to happen. There's some time here. And Jesus continues in the Gospel of John to teach the disciples. Then he leaves and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, that's, this is the Hanom Valley, right? And then he takes them all the way over here to Gethsemane, the opposite end. So they walk down and around the whole city and go to a place that Judas isn't expecting. Judas thinks, I'm going to go get the priest, we're going to come get him. Can you imagine Judas's thoughts as he goes back to that room and he's like, where is he? What's going on? And Judas would have had to con like think, where's he at? Where's he at? Think of the tension. He's going to get him, but now he's gone. He's hidden. 
He really knows the jig is up. He really knows it's done. He really knows. And then Judas goes, you know, I bet he's, I bet he's in Gethsemane. They always went there to pray. It's an area they visited frequently. It's an area that was known for travelers to come by. Um, and I'll show you why in a second. But this march all the way around, all the way down the valley, all the way up, would have been quite an ordeal. It would have taken time. Um, I showed you some pictures that this would have been the valley that we, you walk down. Like that's the path. Um, this is the, where the Mount of Olives is. The Garden of Gethsemane is right over here to the left. Um, it's, there's a graveyard there, tombs there. Um, this is us marching up it. It was quite the hike. There's now a, a giant church there. Um, that's the Church of Gethsemane, Church of the Garden. And so it's, it's very opulent. It's, very, it's got lots of stuff on it. Um, and this is coming from the garden, looking from the other side where the garden is, back to the city walls. So you can see just the sheer landscape. It wasn't just an easy walk across town. So then he tells them, he's praying in the garden. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Whoa, that's bright. (laughs) And so he goes into the garden to pray. And he tells them, sit here for a while. I'm going to go over there and pray. He takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. He takes them in and he's going to, he's feeling really heavy. He knows what's coming. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then we, we, if you've read this passage before, you know what's coming. He says this three different times. He says three times. Just, what are you guys doing? Can't you just stay awake? I'm about to die. Like, can you just, like, come on. Just pray. I'm going to go over here, have some quiet time with the Lord, and I'd love for you to just pray with me. Pray with me. Back and forth, back and forth. This is when he sweats blood, that the stress and emotion of what's about to happen comes upon him. He's sweating blood because he knows what's coming. Like, this isn't... You see these pictures, that's why I get so frustrated when people try to make Jesus a holy angel that doesn't have humanity, or they try to make him just a man who was a teacher because you're you're not going to have that kind of emotion racking you if you're not both. If he was just a spirit, why would you stress? I'm not going to feel pain. I'm not going to have problems. This is going to be no big deal. I'm going to go up there and do something. No big deal. If he was just a man, he would have ran. If he's just a man, why would you, you, you know what's happening, you know what's coming, you get out of Dodge. Like who in their right mind, in the history of the world, has any human being walked into martyrdom with that kind of boldness, confidence, and yes, let's do this. No one. No one. If people have been martyred, people have been killed for their faith, false faith, whatever, it's, they don't walk in with like a, they cower, they negotiate, they try. And as we see, Jesus never did that. He marched to his death. He even tells them, if I wanted, I could bring legions of angels to wipe this out. Knock it off, Peter. We'll get to him in just a second. So Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. He asked his father, my father, if I, in verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So you have the humanity and divinity of, of Jesus, God in flesh, God the Son, in this moment saying, 
I'm going to do your will, God. I'm going to do your will, Father. But I'd rather not. But your will be done. He knows the plan. He's told the disciples already in Matthew, I'm going to be crucified. He told them the method of how he was going to die. The priests that arrest him don't crucify. The Romans do. He knew. He knew everything that was about to happen. But he tells them, my soul is very sorrowful. Will you hang out with me? Be with me this moment. Help me be my strength. And they failed him. And he was frustrated with them. But he knew the plan was coming. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I wanted you to see the, that, that valley, that march. Jesus would have seen them from a distance. He's in the garden. It's the middle of the night. They didn't have headlamps or flashlights. There would have been torches, some kind of lantern, some kind of device. He would have seen the march of these soldiers. He would have seen the men coming to get him, coming up the valley. It's about a mile walk-ish today on a sidewalk. There would, he would have seen them coming his way. And at every one of those, he could have just bolted. He could have taken off and ran. And he didn't. He didn't. He knew this was my, this is the mission on his life. He knew this was the plan. He knew. And he did it anyway. He did it for you and he did it for me. The disciples come. So he, he's frustrated, he's frustrated, he's frustrated. Praying, praying. Now it's time for action. They're coming. Let's go. Get your rest later. It's time for action. He's betrayed in this moment. We know Judas is coming. Um, I'm not sure what I was trying to do here. I forget. We're moving on. Um, I wanted you to see parts of this. Um, Dan, can you hit the lights again? Sorry. Um, I don't, this is just, this is the current, this is the church that's there, the church in Gethsemane. Um, and you can tell that over the years, there's been lots of things added. Um, mosaics are there from um, the Byzantine period. You can, there's lots of architecture. I'm not really sure why there's elk and stags on the top, but they're there. Um, and so you, you just have to kind of get past all of that. That over history, 2,000 years of history, and different people holding this territory and this land, that people want to express their appreciation for what Christ did on the cross. They're trying to make a place where people can come visit, a place of, um, it was very somber when you walk into the place. You're not supposed to take a lot of pictures, and you're supposed to be a place of quiet. And it was, it was kind of reverent. But the part that I really liked in the garden um, was the cave underneath. That when you go under, they, it was common practice for people traveling to sleep in this cave. That if you're going to the garden, if you're going to the garden as a place of prayer, if you're going, if you're traveling through, that this cave is what made the garden in Gethsemane a place that Judas would have known Jesus would have been at. Because that's, when you're traveling through, you're kind of, you don't have a place to stay, you don't have the money, you, you don't have, you're not going to get a hotel, um, that you would just come sleep in the cave. You brought your stuff with you. You had like a bedroll or you just slept in your, the clothes you had. And so this cave would have been, in the wintertime, if you've ever been in any underground areas or caves, or the, the earth is around a constant mid-50s temperature. And so it's great for storage. It's great for all kinds of stuff. Um, I don't know if you ever grew up and had 
your family had a root cellar or something, but um, that's what you, so this place would have been 55 degrees in the middle of winter, and it would have been 55 degrees in the middle of summer. It'd been a great place for people who couldn't afford a hotel. So Judas knew that this would have been a place that they went to lots, and they, they came, they visited, they sat in, they slept in. So all the rest of the disciples would have been in the cave, and Jesus and the three would have been out in the garden. So he was looking for solitude away from even the crowd. He's looking for some solitude even for, away from the disciples. And so when this happened, he's like, it's time. And he would have, there would have been a rush, people coming out of the cave. John Mark talks about how he was so terrified. And this fate, the author of the Gospel of Mark, who is really transcribing, it's, it's the eyewitness testimony of Peter himself. He talks about how he got so scared he ran out of his clothes. Like he took off out of there. So John Mark would have been there as well. Um, and so the cave, we got to go and sit in the cave and like it's just, you just sit in silence. Like, whoa. Because some of the other stuff, like the building, the church, like, well, Jesus was never in there. But he and his disciples literally would have spent nights in this place. Pretty cool. Um, in the garden, uh, we, I mean, it's, olive trees live to be about 2,000 years. They, they live a long time. No one really knows if these are the actual olive trees that Jesus would have sat under, but you'll, the, the guides, the tours have said, well, these are at least the descendants of the olive trees that Jesus sat under. Um, but it's a beautiful garden. It's beautiful. And then, you know, we're cute, so <laughs> we're in the garden too. Um, now the betrayer given them a sign. And I, I love this. I love this. I just, it's like Jesus is just amazing for a lot of reasons but this stuff makes him even more amazing for me because he didn't hide from anything 48 now the betrayer had given them a sign saying the one i will kiss is the man seize him and he came up to jesus at once and said greetings rabbi and he kissed him jesus said to him friend do what you came to do the exact same thing we see the gospel of john him saying do what you gotta do but do it quickly you see a cohesion between the Gospels. And then you have this phrase, that, like they're coming, greetings, Rabbi. And Jesus goes, ah, oh, you, just do what you came to do. Like he knew it was happening. He didn't run. He didn't argue. No, it wasn't me. No, I didn't. Just get it over with. Boldly stepping in to the story of his glory. And the story that should make us all fall on our knees. He did that for us. And it continues. They came up, laid hands on him, seized him. And behold, one of the, those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said, to the crowds. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So they show up. One of the disciples, Peter, snatches his sword and takes off an ear. Now, a friend helped with some insight in this a while back, and I can't get it out of my head, that 
these disciples were experts with edged implements. They were fishermen. They spent lots of time with knives in their hands, swords in their hands. This isn't just a clumsy disciple with no military training. He's got a sword and a tip, and he's like, I think I could swing this thing. And you think about what the helmets that Romans wore. You think about how they wore them. They covered. They often sat. Your ear was a way to keep the helmet to stop on your head. And so the, like, you, you, the precision of a Middle Eastern man who worked with a knife all day around fish is something that I don't think we can behold. Some of you are really adept at skinning out an elk and you can do it in no time, but like if that's your job every day, all day, slicing things up, you, you know how to handle a blade. Um, and now I'm convinced that this disciple wasn't swinging for his head. And miss, like even think of the, that's not even logical in any kind of swing of a sword. If I'm trying to take the, the Roman soldier's head off, it's a horizontal swing. And I get his ear. That's a, if you're, that's really bad. And if you're trying to be in combat, you know you don't do a straight over the top cut on a rope. They wear helmets. Like that's not, you wouldn't do that. You're going to have a piercing, thrusting. You're not going to do that. So for this disciple, they come up to get him to wield an edged weapon and slice off an ear. I am convinced now that it was a message. You're going to mess with my king? You, you, you came here thinking this was going to be easy? I just took your ear off in an instant. Imagine what I can do. You give me a couple more minutes. I'm convinced it was a bold statement to the Romans, to Judas, to the betrayers, if you came here for a fight, you're getting one. And it's not going to be pretty for you. Which is why you have the strong response from Jesus. Jesus would not have had that strong of a response to Peter if it wasn't about to go off in an instant. I'll read it to you again. Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He was saying, don't. He wasn't saying you shouldn't defend yourself. Like people take that out of context. Don't. This is, he just got done saying, rise, let's go. My betrayer's at hand. He walks into this, says, do what you came. He's ready. He's ready to go. He's ready to go. He's ready to go to the cross. He's ready to fulfill his father's mission for him. He's ready to take the sins of the world. He's passionate about this. He knows it's coming. He just spent three, four days irritating everybody to want him dead. This is his plan. And now he has disciples ready to die to protect him. He goes, put it away. If you take that out, you're all going to die and my mission's going to fail and I'm going to have no one left to share what I've taught you for three years. Don't ruin my plan by fighting right now. Put the sword away. I've got plans for you, Peter. Your confession is the rock I'm going to build my church. And if you get killed in this garden, there's no plan B. This is his plan. He says, put it away. And then, I love, I love Jesus. I just love him. He then says, you really think I need you to take these fools out? In an instant, I call upon my father, and there's toast. 
I have a plan. Don't get in the way of my plan. Then he tells them. Day after day. Then he taunts his accusers. Day after day, I've been in that temple and you did nothing. You're a coward. You came at me at night when no one could see. You're cowards. But thank you for filling my father's plan. Let's go. Oh, just, I love, I love it. I love him. Bold, true, compassionate, loving, confounds everyone. It's the reason why Jesus to this day is a stumbling block to people. Because you try to put him in a box, you try to figure out everything he's doing, and you can't. Because then he sends the spirit, and he shifts your heart, he changes, and he's still timeless. And you, you just got to love him. You got to love him. He cares so much for you and for me. He cares about our holiness now so that we're a reflection of his glory to people around us. So that we can draw people to him. He loves you. And he wants you to know that. To kind of wrap this up. I've already went through that. Verse 57. He goes before Caiaphas in the council. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. He wants to see what's happening. We jump down to uh, what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it, you have said so. So he doesn't just say, yes, I am, get killed. He rolls a grenade into the room and lets it explode. Every other time with parables, with conversations, he's allowed for wiggle room. He's allowed, he's allowed for people to go, did he really say he was the king? I'm not really sure. Did he? We don't have exact evidence. We don't really have. And this is the moment. He's picked this moment and he says, I'm doing it now. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He didn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah. They've had other people proclaim that. They've had other people say that. They've killed him. They've taken him out. They've had other people in, in time say those things. And Jesus puts a giant seal that you can't refute. Yes, I, you've said so. That's what you've called me. But I'll be sitting at the right hand of power. And the next time you see me, that's where I'll be. I'm in heaven with the Father. And I'm gonna, he's, he, what he's saying is, I will be judging you one day. You got me right now. I'm your judge. The right hand of power, the judgment seat. He's laying it out. And the high priest goes nuts tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? But they can't kill him. Can't kill him. They don't have that authority. 
They've got to take him to the Romans. We'll talk about that on Good Friday. We'll talk about Pilate on Good Friday. What we see, he's shown himself to be God in flesh to so many people. And now he's doing it in the temple. He's not hiding anymore. And you can't think of Jesus being deceptive. He's building his story. He's building his disciples. He's building into this moment. He's allowing for this to happen. So we still, every year, we, the world celebrates Easter. If Jesus hadn't orchestrated this moment, if he hadn't led all these things into the exact time and exactly how he wanted them, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be like this. We wouldn't send whole weeks. We wouldn't do special things. We wouldn't have all this celebration if he hadn't made all of this happen. We would just go, well, yeah, he he died and he rose. Move on. The reason we get so worked up around Easter is because he did all this to prove who he was. Every part of that was for us to see he's the king. And no one... It's close to being like him around the world. People try. They've tried to create false gods. They've tried. Nobody comes close to the majesty of our God. That's what we share with others. That our God stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, The Holy Spirit comes after he's gone to be our helper. None of that would have happened if the God in flesh, the Son, hadn't come for us. You tell that story to people? God stepped out of heaven. His name's Jesus. He came to save you and me. Not because I'm rich. Not because I'm smart. Not because I was born in the right country. Not because I was born in the right city came for me. He came for you too. His disciples were fishers, tax collectors. They weren't the elite of the elite. The smartest Pharisee of the land tried to kill his followers and he gets knocked to his knees and becomes the greatest evangelist this world's ever seen. Jesus comes for all who would humble themselves. And he does it with boldness, he does it with compassion, and he does it with power. So who's your king? That's what you ask people. Who's your king? My king's the one that loves me enough to leave the perfect relationship of the Trinity with the Father to chase me down. My king is the one that cares about the one sheep as the 99 walk on their path. My king is the one that overlooks all of my sin because he died for it already and there's no penalty to be paid. There's no way I can ever repay him. So my king asks me to humbly submit my life and to serve in a million different ways in a million different capacities because of the love he had for me. And I will pour that love to as many as I can. Try to compete with that. You can. The king that can call legions of angels to wipe out all of us. 
says, I love you. I've got a plan for you. And I want you to be my friend in heaven forever. Sitting at the banquet, celebrating forever. Nothing else matters. He loves you today. He'll love you forever. Will you submit to that love? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've had together in your word, and I'm so thankful that your son Jesus stepped out of heaven to rescue us. I admit that I get caught up in silly stuff sometimes. That I turn on the news or I read the paper and I get fired up over things that I have no control over. And then you remind me, like in passages today, that everything sits squarely in your hand. And I'm thankful for the sovereignty of that fact. But yes, there's work for us to do. Yes, there are things that we are called and compelled to do out of our love for you to help spread the kingdom of heaven here on earth. But ultimately, you've got this. And I'm overwhelmed that I get to contribute maybe one moment in the story of your glory. And that's enough. Help us all, Lord, to embrace that truth. That this is the story that you're writing. And we get to be a part of that. And I pray that if anyone in this room is outside of that story, that they would fall on their knees They would humbly submit their lives to you. They would see the majesty and glory of your son Jesus. And they would want to be part of that family forever. It's what matters more than anything else. So help us as a church and help us as people be great at removing some of those barriers and helping people feel the full embrace of our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.